Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, comrades. My name is Travis, and I host the Aura of Greatness podcast. My podcast explores history through the lens of historical figures. I try to figure out what it was like for these individuals as they rose to fame and then discuss their impact on the world around them. I do this by delving into their family background, sharing the history of the places around them, discussing events from their childhood, analyzing the different moments throughout their formative years that shaped their worldview, and then penetrating their famous moments with the knowledge that the aura around them came from a very human place. I'm currently on my first series in exploring the life of Ernesto Che Guevara. Very soon in my narrative, Che will be bursting onto the scene of the Cold War. You have already ventured across the eastern border. After listening to this episode, come on down to Central and South America. Now, without further ado, enjoy this episode of the Eastern Border Podcast. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. In this episode, we shall be dedicating our attention to KGB. This is the second part of our series on gulags, gulag system, and the punishment in general in the Soviet Union. And last time, we spoke about the history of exiling people, of putting them into these prison camps and everything, but let's just start at the point where everything began. That is, you getting arrested, which might be a quite unpleasant experience if you think about it. Before that, I have a small announcement to make that I recently recently did a poll on Twitter and Facebook about which books should I read to my Patreon subscribers uh, chapter by chapter. And by quite a large margin, Anna Politkovskaya's Russian Diaries won, and the second place was... Uh, the Wizard of the Emerald City, that is, the Soviet ripoff of the Wizard of Oz. So these two books shall be read in order, starting with the Russian Diaries, then the Wizard of Oz. And if you want to hear any of those, you become my Patreon subscriber. Also, we will probably be incorporating PDRP feed into this one, because since we have moved this feed to ACOST, we have uh, had some difficulties on making the other feed to work. So, unfortunately, we shall have to incorporate PDRP into this feed permanently. Now, this is not much of a problem, as most of you, as far as I know, like PDRP. Well, if you don't, you can just skip over it and not listen to these episodes. I hope I hope you won't get too angry. But, yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking that this is going to happen unless I can figure some way how to how to make this work otherwise. But yeah, anyways, this episode is all about KGB, all about arrest, arresting people, all about how the arrests were made and what, what, what happened to you while you were under their control. Anyway, the state of the KGB itself. At the beginning, uh, this is why we call them, all of them, Cheka. Why they're known as Czechists and everything. Because that was the first Soviet security organization. See, in December of 1917, the Cheka, which is an acronym for the <clears throat> All-Russian Extraordinary Commission for Combating Counter-Revolution and Sabotage, was established. 
This is the birth date. By 1918, the rule of the diehard Polish Bolshevik Felix Dzerzhinsky in Cheka uh, ensured that this organization became the most feared institution in the whole Russian Civil War at the time, because during then the war was still going on. In 1922, when the war was about to end, uh, the Cheka was reorganized under the term known as the organization known as the GPU. Soon, it changed to OGPU. Basically, uh, that was another basically government security organization anyways. This founding father, this Felix Dzerzhinsky, he died in 1926, technically because of natural causes. He had statues placed all over the place, Uh, including the Red Square, until 1981. He was in all the children's books. He was like a, a national hero and a definite proof why the Polish people should be in the in the sphere of influence of the Soviet of the Soviet Union. Because, obviously, Felix Dzerzhinsky, he was the greatest man ever to live. He is the person who got rid of all the national enemies that the Soviet Union had. And, well, this, he's created secret police everything that he had made, which was Czech at the time, uh, as Stalin gained power, they gained crazy amounts of control and power in the nation. As you learned the previous episode, by 1929, Stalin had decided to liquidate the Kulak, the rich farmer, as a class, as they weren't inclined to join the Kolkhoz. And he really, really hoped to destroy especially Ukrainian nationalistic feelings by this, because Ukrainians didn't get their independence like we did. They got dragged into this Soviet Soviet Union. So he aimed at the special repercussions in Ukraine to just break them. Cultization and forced famine began there. See, this is the beginning of the Holodomor, the famous case where Stalin just took away insane amounts of grain and murdered a large amount of people. Like I said, it's a forced famine and it's one of the worst crimes ever. Anyway, about a million of, of Ukrainians were deported by these OGPU agents to oh, Siberia or Sinti Gulags. Hundreds of thousands were executed, even for the slightest resistance, and this is where the public Morozov story comes in. In 1933, Stalin caused a forced famine there that killed millions. It is estimated by modern historians that 14,5 million died from 1929 to 1933 as a result of these collectivization policies that Stalin introduced. In 1934, the OGPU was reorganized under our very well-known acronym that we have used a lot previously, the NKVD. Again, uh, just for those of you who have forgotten, it's People's Com Commissariat for Internal Affairs. Stalin gave it unrestricted control, and the organization was to be responsible only to himself. That is, it, uh, it was responsible to no one else but Stalin, and Stalin used it as his personal extermination tool. At its head at that time was uh, Genrik Yakoda. And my sources call him a spiteful and evil man, and I tend to agree. And in December 1934, the terror, the Great Red Terror, that previously was somewhat unknown to the masses, well, if you exclude the forced starvation, it really began. Sergei Kirov, a confidant of Stalin, like I mentioned previously, uh, I'm just going to go into a bit more detail here, uh, Sergei Kirov was assassinated, He was also a Leningrad party chief, and most likely, my sources say, it was, it was done probably by Stalin himself. Because Stalin used Kirov's death as a pretext to, to launch this, his wildly known reign of terror. This reign of terror would last until 1939. In the last month of 1934, nearly a thousand people who were thought to have a connection with the Kirov plot were shot by the NKVD. Thousands more were deported to gulag camps of Siberia, which were, oh wow, as you know already, also run by the NKVD. And this whole, this whole thing was just basically an intro 
to the Great Full Terror beginning in 1936. Party comrades of this Kiro, Zinoviev and Kaminev, were the first to be executed. The NKVD, they targeted many other party members of the upper echelons. Yagoda, the leader at the time, himself was purged for irrational reasons, really, just crazy ones, his wife uh, having had a part of a plot to overthrow Soviet Union and other nonsense, basically, he was killed because he needed to be killed. And he was replaced by a five-foot-tall Nikolai Yezhov, which, as we know from last episode, was wildly known as the Bloody Dwarf. Another other name which I found since the last episode was uh, his era would be called Yezhovshina, or the time of Yezhov. That was just crazy, because he was responsible for a lot of deaths and a lot of dispunishment going on. And this is a short history, so I won't go into too much detail, but, but still. Yezhov managed to be almost as bloody as Stalin himself. You see, Yagoda, the previous leader, was executed, and Yezhov was given free reign by Stalin himself in 1937. That's, that's when the terror had reached the height already. The NKVD arrested and shot millions of the whole upper officer corps, and it was just purged of everything. In 1938, Yezhov himself was replaced by Lavrenti Beria, who was a close friend of Stalin. Beria purged the NKVD itself, as had Yezhov before him, and obviously he saw to the fact that Yezhov was shot. By 1946, the NKVD was reorganized again, and numerous times, and it happened many, many times more until it was known under the all-too-familiar abbreviation of uh, KGB. Its duties and methods remained about the same until the deaths of Beria and Stalin in 1953. Premier Nikita Khrushchev kind of deprived it of a lot of privileges that it had, and terror was no longer used as a political method, but the memory of it would, have, would kind of haunt the people forever. Now, let's go back in the beginning, the, the history of this NKVD. This Cheka, or the Vecheka, was created in the 20th December 1917. Uh, this was, again, known as the <clears throat> All-Russian Extraordinary Commission for Combating Counter-Revolution and Sabotage. That's what the Cheka is known. The NKVD, again, had been formed in 1918, to control the police department, criminal investigation departments, fire brigades, internal troops, and prison guards. With the end of the civil war uh, in the 1922 and the resulting period of stabilization, the Cheka was transformed. On the 8th February 1922, they were formed into the GPU, which is the state political directorate from which all the commissars came, which was then subordinated to the NKVD. With the formation of the USSR in 1923, because officially it formed only then, the GPU became the OGPU, the Unified State Political Directorate, and it was upgraded to an independent directorate of the Soviet Council of People's Commissars. Basically, that means it was removed from NKVD control and was kind of separated from it for a while. In 1934, this OJPU was transformed into the GUGB, which is the Chief's Directorate of the State Security, which was again subordinated into the new All-Union NKVD. This kind of marks the beginning of this Soviet State Security's most powerful and autocratic period. All key aspects of the internal and state security were now straight subordinated into this one body under one leader. And like I said previously, Yagoda Yezhov, and finally, from 25th November 1938, Lavrenti Beria. When we look at how the NKVD was organized, this great organization, in 1934, where it's kind of the main terror routes come, was organized like this. There was the GUGB, which is the Chief Directorate of State Security, the GUPVO, the Chief Directorate of Frontier Guards and Interior Troops, our famous Gulag, chief directorate of uh, camps, <laughs> so to speak, education camps, you know, fun stuff. Mind asbestos have fun all day long, nothing to do, ha ha lol. Except not really, as you already know. 
Anyways, further on, GUM, Chief Directorate of Militia, and some other units responsible for firefighting, local anti-aircraft defense, highway construction archives, and, and so on. Basically, NKVD at this time, which would grow to KGB, was responsible for most weird services, most weird stuff going on, for the most... for the control of services, for the control of public sector in general, for the policing of clerks, policing of everyone going on around there. It's kind of interesting, because... It's like FBI, except they control the libraries too, and, you know, they can just go into a library and shoot someone. On the 2nd of February, 1939, the GUPVO was divided into six chief directorates. GUPV, which was the chief directorate of frontier guards. GUKV, chief directorate of convoy troops. And now comes the crazy one. GUVOVPGO, which meant... Chief Directorate of Troops for Guarding Industry and State Facilities. Then again, later came GUZV, Chief Directorate of NKVD Railroad Troops. Uh, and just imagine you have your own official railroad troops. I'm just reading you all these all these nice names to, to understand how thoroughly KGB had control over anything. I mean, they were responsible for convoying army troops. They were responsible for guards of industry and state facilities. They were guarding the railroads. And and uh, as it goes on, GU Injv, Chief Directorate of NKVD Engineer Troops. Or GU Intv, Chief Directorate of the NKVD Intendant Service. And of course, GUOV, Chief Directorate of the Operational Forces. Essentially, essentially if you were an army part, you would have NKVD accompanying you. You would have guys which were from these directorates, would sit there and just look at how you do your work everywhere. They had authority over literally everyone. Why? Because that's how it operated. Imagine this, you have a secret service which is responsible only, only to Stalin by this point. They are everywhere. If you are becoming an engineer, a military engineer or just a civil engineer, you'll have NKVD guys there. Because NKVD manages to become responsible for literally everything. And it gets kind of crazy from there, especially when you think about this directorate for troops of guarding industry and science facilities. If you're a mall cop, if, you, if you're just a guard somewhere, yeah, you're still under the NKVD jurisdiction, which would later become KGB. On February the 3rd, 1941, Decree 194 of the CPSU Politburo removed this GUGB which is, again, because uh, you might have you might have forgotten, Chief Directorate of State Security, they removed it from the NKVD and elevated to equaling people's commissariat status, creating the NKGB. The NKGB was led by certain Merkulov, which was Beria's former deputy, who basically remained a loyal lackey to Stalin. The new NKGB was responsible for external espionage, counter-espionage throughout the USSR, which were basically operations to find and liquidate anti-Soviet parties and counter-revolutionary formations in the Soviet Union. They were also tasked with the guarding leaders of the party and of the state, which were the same. The NKGB organization was then created basically in all levels of the party, starting from all union, down to oblast, down to krai, down to rayon, which are several administrative divisions of this. So this is when the NKGB, which would later then turn into KGB, separated from the NKVD, and other functions of uh, NKVD kind of remained, because KGB took over this security situation here. They took the core part of NKVD and left NKVD with everything else, being responsible for gulags, being responsible for, for firefighters, guards, just taking political control. KGB now, they were the chief security guys. And that meant that they basically had authority even somewhat over the NKVD itself. Because these were the NKGB at this point. They were already your very well-known dudes in, um, in leather coats, wearing these black leather gloves so that the blood can be easily smeared off of them. And they were the guys who'd arrest you while you sleep. This NKGB was later divided into 
four separate sections. First was UR, which is Directorate of Intelligence. Управление разведывательное. Then there was UK. Nothing to do with Great Britain. There was the Directorate of Counterintelligence. Управление контрразведывательное. Then there was USP, Secret Political Directorate, which was basically the guys who did most of arresting. And then there was the UNMK, Directorate of the Commandant of the Moscow Kremlin. UKMK were the guys who were guarding Stalin personally. At one point, on late June 1941, after the German invasion, this NKGB was back again resubordinated into NKVD, as the GUGB sort of ensure closer control of nation's security apparatus during, during the chaotic time, because at one point, this idea that we have like this general control organization, and then we have this NKGB which controls the which controls the controllers, you know, like in that movie, Who Watches the Watchman? Well, KGB watches the Watchman. Well, obviously, it kind of fell down as the Germans invaded. The Nazis invaded the Soviet Union, and NKGB, this fledgling organization, I'm talking about it like a baby, but yeah, this dreadful organization was incorporated back into the NKVD. In April 1943, after the military situation had kind of changed in the favor of the Soviet Union, the GUGB was again removed from the NKVD and became the NKGB once again. This time, the change lasted until the birth of the MGB in 1946. See, in the March of that year, 1946, the Soviet government was again restructured and all people's commissariats were, redesi- were redesigned into ministries. Because previously, the Soviet Union didn't have any ministries as we know it in the modern world. They only had people's commissariats. But Stalin decided that, you know, enough power in some people's hands is enough. Let us just reorganize everything and take power away from the army. Thus, NKVD became the MVD, and NKGB became the MGB. Merkulov, of this as the head of this organization, was replaced by the new MGB. <clears throat> Merkulov was replaced as the head of this new MGB by certain Abakumov. Kruglov replaced Beria as the head of the MVD, and Beria himself by this point became a full member of the Soviet Politburo and a deputy chairman of the Council of Ministers, exercising thus complete and full control over both the MVD this general guarding organization over the firefighters, the clerks and everything, and MGB, which was controlling that other organization and was, were responsible for spying counters, counterintelligence and arresting people. On the 6th of March, 1953, the day after Stalin died, Beria succeeded in uniting the MVD and MJB into one body, the MVD, again. On 13th March... 1954, after Beria himself was killed, and after his uh, so-called secret trial and further on execution, (laughs) this huge government controlling apparatus, the Ministry of Truth, if you want to name it that way, this MVD was again split up. The reformed MVD retained its traditional policing and internal security functions, while the new KGB took on the state security functions of the MGB. The KGB was now only subordinated to the USSR Council of Ministers, the Soviet cabinet. And this day is when we can speak about the very beginning of the KGB as we know it. The famous KGB that you've heard in the movies, it begins in this day after a long history from being split over by everyone, and this is the formation of the very defining Soviet panel apparatus. So, while we are at the KGB, let's talk a bit about what they did and how they did it. See, one of the main goals of this whole Soviet leadership thing was to destroy the very personal ties among private citizens and kind of create this atmosphere of distrust and fear. Everyone was just influenced by propaganda in some way or another, and there were posters and poems and movies everywhere 
which provided a constant reminder, a constant notice in your head that you were at all times forever surrounded by enemies constantly, and that vigilance was complete necessity of everyday life. People were really encouraged to denounce enemies whenever they felt like there was something going on there. In the last episode, I used my uh, poem by Dimian Bidni. In this poem, he expressed dismay towards enemies, he expressed hatred towards the enemies of the Soviet era, and um, it was quite typical of the literature in, in these times. See, there was also this this thing that happened in the movies, and the, there was a musical film called The Goalkeeper, and in which this goalkeeper was encouraged to do this job in the following way, and I'm quoting here, quote, Hey, you goalie, prepare for battle. You're a watchman by the gate. Just imagine that behind you, the borderline must be kept safe. And this also involved the or famously and already known Pavlik Morozov and all sorts of poems and everything. Because this is how this is how it operated. You had to distrust everyone you knew. You had to hate those people. You had to see them as the enemies of the state. And to do this, the KGB did this, and that was their first first goal why you were get arrested. And recently enough, they had uh, incentives set up by the state for the people to denounce each other. Uh, interestingly, they had rewards that one could potentially receive a share of whatever was confiscated by the state from, from your neighbor. For example, if a person lost his apartment, the denouncer could re- receive a part, if maybe sometimes even all of it, of the property as a reward. Another incentive to denounce others was that one could be arrested simply because one was associated with a guilty party, even if the association was just random things going on there in the background. If the accused did not report the guilty party, so to speak, he could be arrested on the basis of Article 5812. Oh, nice Article 5812. And, you know, as usual, there were just some people who simply enjoyed denouncing their enemies. Uh, a person called Nadezhda Mindelsam, from my sources, uh, she called these people the, quote, lovers of evil, and explains that they, quote, had a taste for the dual role. Some of them were quite famous. Ellsberg, for example. It was typical of Ellsberg that, after getting his friend S sent to a con- concentration camp, he continued to visit, visit S's wife and gave her advice. She knew about his role, but was frightened of betraying her disgust. And this this happened kind of often. Now, when we talk about the arresting things, and this is the interesting part, see, the the theory of all of this was that the procedure for arresting people in the KGB... I'm sorry, it's just my cat. I'm sorry, so in the theory, the procedure of arresting people was kind of supposed to follow a process, a legal process, to prevent excesses kind of by the local police. The KGB was set up, in general, to quote-unquote prevent these excesses of the local cops. In many cases, restrictions on arrest were kind of actually observed, but during the late 1930s, the process deteriorated a lot, basically due to pressure from, from Stalin. And... The significant increase in the number of arrests also kind of was was a very important to this deterioration and the fact that you could be arrested anywhere at any time in your house uh, your house at your workplace on the street picked up by a random car interestingly enough i I have found in my sources an American worker, John Scott, who happened to live in Magnitogorsk, and uh, he describes arresting process, which is interesting quote. All arrests were made at night. Surprise was always sought for. People were arrested when they least expected it, and left for weeks when they expected every night to be taken. The arrests were made by agents having no idea of the accusations against the person being arrested. They arrived. Usually a sergeant in uniform and two plainclothes men in an automobile, knocked at the door, politely presented an order signed by the prosecuting attorney, or by the head of the city NKVD, authorizing them to search the apartment and arrest a certain person. The door was then locked. 
No one could come or go during the search. A civilian witness was taken at random from an adjacent apartment. He or she watched the search going on, then was requested to sign a paper stating the authorities had not abused their power. That is, beaten up anyone or stolen anything. Everything confiscated was listed, uh, listed and a receipt given. The search finished, the polite and completely uncommunicative agents departed with the arrested person. Probably no one in the house except the witness was aware until the next morning that anything had taken place. Now, from our local KGB museum, uh, there was also reports that people would, during these random house searches, ask, you know, am I being accused of something, what's going on? But the official response was that, no, no, we can't tell you, uh, because maybe if you're incriminated for holding something unpatriotic or very un-Soviet, such as the flag of independent, uh, independent Latvia or something, that would basically mean that if they would tell what, what you're accused of, you would then either hide or de- destroy the evidence while they were searching for it. In reality, however, it basically meant that, for the most part, they were just being denounced by someone and the KGB themselves did not know for what are they looking for. But they did know that, according to 58, the, the famous paragraph 58, they would find something to incriminate you with in the house. Otherwise, they wouldn't have come. They didn't know what they were searching for, because, you know, in normal societies, you have to have a warrant and you have to have a reason why you're searching a place. So even though you could have gotten nothing on you, you just... Trust me, the KGB would have figured out why to arrest you. At other times, some, some people, random individuals, would be called into the local NKVD headquarters, or KGB headquarters later on, because it's the same system, really. They could be asked in for questioning. These random visits were presented by the authorities as basically just a meeting, and the people in question were assured that they would not be kept for long. Since most of the people arrested were completely innocent of the crime, they fully believed that they could return quite soon once the mistake was cleared up. A certain Olga Adamova Slyosberg was a communist who lived in Moscow. She recounts her reaction when she discovered that her husband had been arrested. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. I opened the door and was taken aback by the smell of boots and tobacco. Marusha, her nanny, was sitting there telling the children a story in the midst of utter chaos. Heaps of books and manuscripts were scattered about the floor. Cupboards had been flung open. Clothes hastily stuffed back. Underwear protruded from half-open drawers. I had no idea what had happened, but my heart froze in a dreadful promotion of misfortune. Shielding the children, Marusha got up and stood in a strange quiet voice. It, it's all right. Keep calm. Where's my husband? What happened? Don't you understand? They have taken him. No, it was impossible. It couldn't have happened to, to me, to him. Of course, there had been rumors, just rumors by this time, it was only the beginning of 1936, that something was going on, but that there had been arrests, but surely all this applied to other people. It couldn't happen to us. I believed in the justice system of our courts. My husband would have come back and this alien smell and topsy-turvy apartment would be no more than a dreadful memory. And this goes with um, a lot of people, actually. This is a common occurrence. Now, after this arrest, this newly accused person, who probably was pissed off or, or just afraid, they were usually taken to prison for questioning. In a cult in a black car, usually called a black raven or a black Maria. 
These vehicles would often, would often be disguised so that the public would not know how often these arrests occurred. Some were painted like delivery trucks, with bread or meat painted on the sides. And many of those who were arrested in this, this way, they never saw their families again. The pretexts for arrest, they varied greatly. While, while of course there were some common criminals who were convicted of the typical crimes like murder and theft, the purges included a, um, a political type of prisoner who might be charged with sabotage, destruction of state property, like this previously mentioned wrecking, or spying, for one, or even sometimes more, of the many perceived enemies of the state. Gulag historian Anne Applebaum, quote, The father of Alexander Lebed, the Russian general and politician, was twice ten minutes late to work for his factory job, for which he received a five-year criminal camp sentence. At the largely criminal Polyansk camp near Krasnoyarsk 26, home of one of the Soviet Union's nuclear reactors, archives record one quote-unquote criminal prisoner with a six-year sentence for stealing a single rubber boot in a bazaar. Another, with ten years for stealing ten loaves of bread. And another, a truck driver raising two children alone, with seven years for stealing three bottles of wine he was delivering. Yet another got five years for speculation, meaning he had bought cigarettes in one place and sold them in another. Antony Eckhart tells the story of a woman who was arrested because she took a pencil from the office where she worked. It was for her son, who had been unable to do his schoolwork for lack of something to write with. In her memoirs, Eugenia Ginsburg remembers a woman who was arrested because she told two political jokes. Gustav Herling worked in the camps with a man who had received ten years for winning an unfortunate drunken bet that he could shoot Stalin's eye and the portrait on the wall. People were even arrested for beating a soccer team supported by somebody high up in the government. The first thing that happened to you in um, after this arrest was that you were dragged by this car to this local NKVD or KGB office, and, and this is a story which uh, is often told by the KGB museum here in Riga. You would arrive, you would be in this car, You'd be driven to the back entrance so that you don't know the layout of the land. Afterwards, you'd be just assured that, you know, if you're innocent, then you would you would be kind of okay. You would be released. And then you would be told to undress completely. You'd be completely naked. And then you just hold you would hold your own clothing while being completely naked. And you would be taken up to a secret compartment in a, in a room, mostly. These were these were mainly multi-floor buildings because uh, that was more intimidating. You would be taken to an upper floor while walking the, the stairs completely naked, people just walking around there and being being okay with this. They're working in the... They're, they would be just working in the place and you'd be completely naked and you'd be taken upstairs and the first thing that you'd see while being taken into, an, into a chamber would be a huge knife on the table which was used for psychological shock. Now, that knife would be used to basically cut off all the buttons from the shirts and pants and just remove all the zippers and remove all the belts and everything that you could use as a as a tool to harm yourself. And then you would be asked to squat and a full cavity search would be performed on you. And after that, well, if they found something valuable on you or inside of you, they would just take that and tell you that, you know, that hey, this is bad and we'll go in your case. But basically this was, this was just so you would be very much intimidated. After that, after that, they would allow you to get dressed. But as another way of humiliating yourself, you'd get your old clothing bag but it would just not hold on to you because the belts were removed all the all the buttons were removed and everything was just removed so you would be kind of embarrassed and you would be holding your own holding your own clothing together just so that it would stay, stand on you while they took the mug shots and then they would take you to the local KGB prison to wait for some interrogations because uh, Interestingly enough, the first days in this prison, they were an unbearable shock to most people. Political prisoners often received the worst treatment in these cases, obviously. In most cases, the conditions in the prison were horrendous. 
the cells were so crowded that there was almost no space to sleep. And uh, even though my source, this uh, Gulag History book, uh, speaks about in general about all of this, but I have seen the cells in Riga prison, and you know, you you walk into this small room, which is at all times brightly lit. Then you you would think this room is for about six people. It's actually for thirty-two, and it's kind of crazy. Anyway, a third a nineteen thirty-three memorandum of from the OGPU, which is as I told before the precursor of the KGB, describes the overcrowding. Basically, as a rule, police cells are overcrowded by two hundred up to four hundred percent, and sometimes up to six hundred, eight hundred percent. Thus, in the Moscow police detention cells built for 350 people, 2,341 were being kept of, uh, kept as of 31st of January. As of the January number 1, in the Urals province, cells built for 470 people housed 1,715 inmates. As of 1st of January, in the Ivanovno industrial province, cells built for 19 people had 70 people. Uh, etc. And in Riga, yeah, really, uh, in Riga, cells built for 15 people held 32, cells built for 6 people held 15, and, and so on. Instead of bathrooms, these cells had a bucket in the corner. <laughs> and even this was better than in those prisons where one needed permission to be taken to the toilet. And this was interesting because you might imagine these overcrowded cells, they're very, very hot, it's very, very hot in there. And you had 15 minutes per cell at each morning in 6 a.m. to actually use the bathroom. That means actually going going to the bathroom and just having a have, washing yourself in the sink for a moment. And that's also the moment where the inmates would take the bucket and just pour it out. You had to hold on. You had to hold it in in yourself. Otherwise, the stench would be just unbearable. You also weren't allowed to actually go go outside, uh, and like too much. You you were let outside only once per week for some thirty minutes, and then you would have to walk around the courtyard while always looking down. There were always bright lights in these cells, and you were only allowed to sleep on your back. And if you kind of turned uh, somehow or covered your eyes at in some some form, you would be waked up. That is so they could torment you more. Because otherwise, uh, the guards told you that they had to see your face at all times. These were dreadful cells. Obviously, lice and parasites and disease ran rampart. And the stench, apparently, was so strong that the guards sometimes issued perfume to cover up the smell. And at least here in Riga, uh, the kind of the hallways in between the cells where the guards worked were covered with very thick carpet so that it would uh, the blood would kind of just black carpet at that so that the blood would kind of drain it in there and they wouldn't have to clean it and that you couldn't hear when the guards were coming so that they could just wake you up whenever you kind of fell asleep weirdly and yeah also the beds no there there were no beds there were basically mattresses were never changed there were just uh, some some hay in in what what they had been in the mattresses at some point again just i don't know metal simple metal beds mattresses there and not enough not enough room for people to actually sit down there because you weren't allowed in the cell to speak loudly. Some people just sat down. You were just trying to speak very quietly and trying to deal with a migraine that not having a good sleep or anything would, would give you. Food was extremely sparse there. Interestingly enough, uh, they were given three meals per day, sort of, if you can call them meals, uh, in the in the mornings and in the evenings, you would get dark bread with tea, and I'll get to this tea later because the tea was made and during the dinner time. And you see, the average meal of the prisoners at that time was just random vegetable soup. But the vegetables were never basically washed or anything. They were just uh, you know you you have dirty potatoes, you just uh, cut them up in pieces, throw them in a in a bucket, and then then you kind of serve this up with, with some other vegetables which are just thrown in there from huge bags. And then that would be your soup. And your tea would basically mean that, you know, after you power all the soup out, you just pour water in into these buckets, boil it, and then you kind of, you know, give that to people as tea. What what the Soviet KGB called tea was essentially boiled water 
pour just boiled into the buckets where uh, the soup was being made for the dinner. And I'm not over-exaggerating that this is actually what happened. Interestingly enough, no communication was allowed between these cells in the prison. Uh, a tapping language, quite, quite an interesting one, was prevalent amongst the prisoners. Each letter had a certain combination of taps, and these prisoners became quite adept at kind of exchanging information in this matter, despite the various attempts of the KGB authorities to prevent it. Now, for those considered to be ideologically dangerous, a designation reserved mostly for political so-called terrorists, there were solitary confinement cells. These were typically no larger than, you know, just a few steps in each direction, and they could ex- they could get extremely, extremely cold in wintertime. <laughs> but by most accounts, people could spend only a short time in these cells before losing both their health and their sanity. Interestingly enough, some of these cells were so tight and so packed up that you couldn't even squat in them. It was impossible. It was just, you could only stand there and lean against the wall, because it was literally impossible for you to even squat there, because the cell was just too narrow for that one. And you were kept in these cells just to just to break you down for the interrogation. And that is where the real horror started. <laughs> but before the interrogation happens, uh, yeah. Let's take a short break and give a word to Alice. Hi guys, it's Alice. Thank you for joining us. We're happy to have you. I'm glad to announce that we are slowly but surely getting on YouTube and currently we have 15 subscribers. So if you want to support us, you can just subscribe to us. Currently we're uploading all the previous episodes that we had until now and by the end of October we should be full on there. We will also be releasing trailers for each episode so that you know, you can get a little preview of what's going on and send it to your friends. You can also support us by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash the eastern border. We have monthly raffles where you can get all sorts of merch from the Soviet Union, including badges and money. We're also on Facebook and Twitter where we post some fun stuff from the eastern border, from the current news about Russia, and all sorts of Soviet fun. And now, let's get back to the show. It's serious, but important. Welcome back to the show. Now, the main purpose of these KGB prisons, or NKVD prisons, or, you know, the system's prisons. And I'm not talking about uh, the Gulag concert. Now, these prisons were to hold prisoners for interrogation until the Gulag, because you just couldn't grab someone on the street and send it away. You had paperwork to fill. I mean... Obviously. The end goal of this interrogation was to get the prisoners to sign a confession that they had committed this certain crime. Now, normally these accusations, as you might understand by this point, were completely faked. And the prisoners, most more often than not, refused to sign this document. Now, they had to do it just because, you know, so the paperwork is clean and everything is in order to give a veneer of legitimacy. It's kind of interesting that, but the Soviet authorities were obsessed with this need to obtain this written confession. In most cases, what would happen to this guy who who went there was already determined, but many hours of intimidation and torture were used to force the prisoner to sign this this faked up document. It was important for propaganda reasons. See, the Soviets were the good guys, and they had to like keep their the workers everywhere and the KGB agents themselves kind of ensured that, you know, we're doing the right thing, otherwise he, he wouldn't inside this thing. Obviously, one of the primary tools used by the secret police, police system was torture. Uh, Russian historian Oleg Hlevunik writes that, quote, Soviet punitive agents were at that time members of one of the more criminalized and brutal security services in history. In a very secret letter written to Stalin by one of the heads of the secret police, there are some of the outlines of uh, the interrogation means. You can uh, you can spot some of them there. So, uh, quote. In relation to arrested persons who stubbornly oppose the demands of the investigator and conduct themselves in a provocative manner, and seek uh, in all ways to drag out the investigation or to deflect it from the right path, a strict regime under guard is to be introduced. This includes the following measures. 
A. Transfer to a prison with more strict regime, where hours of sleep are restricted and the maintenance of the arrested person in regard to food and other domestic needs is worsened. B. Solitary confinement. C. Forbidding walks, food parcels, and the right to read books. D. Placing in a punishment cell for a period up to 20 days. End quote. Now these, uh, nice interrogators, they were masters of inflicting pain and carried it out with, with very increasing efficiency. I mean, <laughs> see, uh, if I would say that Gestapo learned, Gestapo learned from these guys, it kind of would mean that Gestapo overdid these guys. Actually, they're, um, they're at the level of the same evil that you would imagine your Nazis being, except these are Soviets, and... Uh, they fought the Nazis, so they must be the good guys, right? Right? Except, you know, uh, they uh, they beat the prisoners. They burned the prisoners. They froze the prisoners. They even raped their prisoners. They cut them with knives. There were special standing cells, uh, sometimes called the kishka, or the intestine, which were also used as solitary confinement ones, which are shaped like chimneys and... <laughs> Designed specifically, like I said before, so that the person could not sit down. Every time the person collapsed, his knees would buckle and he would become painfully wedged in the cell, effectively forcing him to stand up again. In a report, the NKVD noted one instance where an interrogator, quote, knocked Kay teeth out and kicked her. As a result, he damaged her spine and Kay could only stand on her hands and knees. The support describes another case where the prisoner's, quote, head was squeezed between the steel bars of a sink and he was beaten with sticks on his back and legs for two days and two nights. After the beating, he was put in a stance and beaten on the head with a paperweight, a bottle, a chair leg, until unconscious, and then thrown in a lockup. Basically, hygiene was non-existent. It was also used as a psychological weapon to weaken the resolve of the prisoners. They were often softened up for a week or two in a common cell where the filth demoralized them to the point where they would submit. In at least one instance, a lice cell was used where the cell was kept at high temperature and the lice flourished by feeding of the helpless prisoners. And this is how what, how the source presents itself. Actually, high temperatures were kept, uh, at least as far as I know, also here in Riga, because uh, this is a uh, like this this Gulag history site. They they speak about mostly Russian. Uh, KGB prisons, but in, in Riga they were also kept in extremely high temperatures over there, and yeah, lice were sometimes even introduced to prisoners, and they were specifically paid agents of KGB who are just, you know, you have a cell of uh, 30 prisoners there in the KGB prison, and one of them is Czech agent, actually, he just spends a, a while there and then goes back. He has to suffer for a while, but then he gets a nice vacation, huge paycheck, you know, he suffers for a payment. And then you can't even talk within yourself, because someone might um, then drag you down. You know, you, you couldn't sleep during the day, you couldn't lay down during the day in these uh, KGB prisons. And you know, one night you could be taken up and interrogated all night long, and then you you couldn't sleep then, and you can't sleep during the day, so you, you went without sleep, and then you had to stay up the whole next day. And then during the next night, they would take you again, until you signed the confession paper. <laughs> That's one of the more interesting and forms of torture here. And I'm going into more creepy territory and my creepy voice is, is out because that's the way of me coping with reading you and uh, reading you all of this from my script. And it, it is kind of weird for me even when I speak about this because um, even though I'm a Soviet man, I'm, I'm still a man. And it's it's hard to talk about all this all this situation going on here, especially since it has affected my own relatives. But yeah, I'm sorry for this sidetracking. Let's just carry on. See, another dreaded form of torture was the conveyor. Vladimir Terchavin, in his book, uh, meets a fellow prisoner who recounts the, 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 what his experience with this system. Quote, Picture a group, a group about 40 prisoners, men and women, all worn out, hungry, eaten by lice, suffering from swollen legs from long standing, people who have not slept for many nights. Single file, we were laid into the big room with three or four desks, and at each desk was an examining officer. Then comes another room and more examining officers. A corridor, stairs, and more rooms with more examining officers. At the command, at a run, we had to run from one desk to another. And as we approached each desk, the examining officer would start shouting at us the wildest language imaginable. This sort of torture lasted for 10 to 12 hours. 
Examining officers go away and rest. They get tired setting and shouting obscenities. So are relieved by others. But the prisoners have to keep on running. One of the more effective methods of electing a confession was to use the personal information about the prisoner. It was difficult for prisoners to hold out when the interrogators threatened to arrest their spouses or their children. According to official documents, it was also common practice to make, quote, <clears throat> use of compromising data, which the MGB, again, the new name of NKVD, later KGB, has at its disposal, which the latter is concealing. Sometimes, in order to outwit the arrested person and give him the impression that the agencies of the MGB know everything about him, the investigator draws the arrested person's attention to particular intimate details from his personal life, vices which he conceals from the associates and others. There were even reports of mock executions in order to get the stubborn prisoner to confess. Yeah, this, this happened quite often. This this uh, mock execution things, because uh, I'm mixing stuff from stories and from a book here at this point, from various books. Uh, but mock executions happen. You would be undressed, you would be just placed a pistol in your head and you would be kind of sort of executed except without a real bullet. You just knew that you wouldn't die at the very last moment kind of interesting, extremely weird process. It was called the ditch. The prisoners were talking to a, taken to a site where others had been sentenced to be executed. The KGB officials put them, <clears throat> quote, alongside those sentenced to death and started shooting those sentenced to death in their presence and threatening to shoot them if they did not confess. Obviously, in the end, most people signed the confession given to them. Although the charges were usually completely fake, some signed because the endless days of torture and confinement were just simply too much. They also felt that the outcome was inevitable and signing would just speed up the process. Others signed because they felt they were saving their loved ones. Sometimes they just forged the signature anyways. And the final act before sending the prisoners to Gulag was the trial itself. Not everyone was given a trial, especially after 1937, as mostly everyone was being arrested. 20% of the country, after all, sitting there. However, a large number of prisoners had their case heard in front of a troika. The famous troika mentioned before three judges, who listened to the evidence and passed down the sentence. Although the outcome was sort of known before already, that was an important moment, because the prisoners would finally, finally learn their fate. Some were taken immediately shot. The majority received a certain number of years of hard labor, and a random labor cop in a gulag, which we're going to talk about in the next episode and talked about in the previous one. There was another type of trial that was utilized for the high-profile figures called the show trial. As with other trials, the outcome of these ones was, was kind of there already. But the proceedings drew regional or national attention. Many of the top communists, such as Kamenev, Ryokov, and Bukharin, they were all a they, they all admitted in these trials to heinous tribes of sabotage and spying in front of the whole country. The same happened here in Riga, Latvia, in 1946, where seven, uh, seven high-ranking Nazi officers were tried, uh, governors of Riga, leaders of the forces here, people here were just uh, tried and then they were executed. The problem was, one of these seven Nazis got so sick he couldn't be hanged, and, by the way, hangings happened in the place where we now have our World War II victory monument, built by the Soviets, because it was no victory for the Latvians, as we were just sitting there in occupation for many, many years to come. They committed crimes as Nazis, and sure, they were tried, and they had this show trial, and they were all sentenced to hang in this, this square. And also, many, many people were just forced to come and watch this hanging. It was one of the, one of the latest public executions, I suppose, known to man by this point. Because a lot of people came and brought their children. And some people just had to come because their, their work dragged them to it. But the thing is, they had only six Nazis at the execution. The seventh one got sick, and, got sick and died in the hospital from a heart attack. The seventh one was just a random prisoner dragged into there in clothing and put on randomly and we still don't know his name. Why? Because, you know, hell, the Soviets sentenced seven Nazis to hanging, so seven Nazis there shall be. And it doesn't matter if the seventh wasn't a Nazi or he probably didn't even need execution or whatever. No, no, no. We'll just dress him up in Nazi clothing and put him up and hide, hide him with, hang him with the rest. He must have done something. He must have been some, some rich dude or, or whatever. And yeah, you know, you, you might think about the suicide rates there in the interrogations during the trials. And that was one of the more favorite tra- tactics the KGB used too. You see, these interrogations usually happened in the top floors of the building. 
at least here in Riga, Latvia, it happened in the seventh floor of the building. And those are, these are one of the old Art Nouveau buildings built in the early 20th century. They're, they're very, very elaborate and, and quite huge. So the interrogator would come up to you and say, well, you know, you just make, our li- make your life easier to me and you and your family and everyone. Just jump out, jump, j- jump through that window. Uh, jump through that window, kill yourself. We'll, we'll leave everyone alone. And less papers to sign everything. And it, it's just going to be amazing. It, it's awesome. Then he would just leave you. And there, there's this big curtain in front of this, this window that, that, that the room has. And then you decide that, you know what, uh, you, you're broken down by this point. You've been in the, this prison system, you've been suffering a lot. And then you go to the window and you've been taunted to jump out of the window to commit a suicide. And then you open the window, or kind of, you open, open the, the curtain to, to the window and you'll notice that the window has bars in front of it so that you can't kill yourself anymore. And then the interrogator comes in and says, oh well, only a guilty person would try to kill himself now, would it? Because uh, for, uh, for innocent people, this is just a misunderstanding. Let's keep you and torment you for a while now more here. Welcome to the Soviet Union, gentlemen. Anyway, back to the trials. These were kind of um, mostly scripted, as you might understand, and uh, the prosecutor and the accused basically had roles they had supposed they were supposed to fulfill. The show trials were kind of effective tools in convincing the people that corruption in their country was pervasive. Citizens were led to understand that, you know, if the leaders of the revolution had resorted to these crimes, it was only reasonable to think that anyone might be capable of doing the same. There are many reasons why the Soviet government insisted on carrying out this shut up justice. Perhaps, like I said before, it gave the overall system kind of some legitimacy. And it gave the people a sense that the purges were but unfortunate, but kind of necessary part of all this communist struggle. It was a dreadful time, especially for my people. And I really don't understand those who don't understand how evil the Soviet system actually was. I cannot justify the crimes the Soviets did, and I cannot stand for anyone who is, is, is being a Marxist in this day and age. Because these guys were fanatical Marxists, and make no mistake, even Marx himself wrote about armies of workers and, and children being taken away from their families to be raised in the communal barracks, and, and the workers being assigned orders, and they've been strictly organized, even though he was never, he had never worked in his life, and he was under this rich person, Engels, who basically fed him rich factory owner exploitator by, by socialist standards. Socialism and communism are, are weird things, and uh, this is not a political show normally, normally. But there are some things which are just wrong. I mean, social democracy is one thing. Sharing with other people your wealth is nice. Yeah, but if someone tries to enforce utter equality and take away the stuff that you have earned and try to make sure that you are completely equal, not only in chances and rights, but in everything that other people, then, you know, you better better take a look at this. We are kind of egoist now, aren't we? And, um, sorry for being kind of emotional here, but yeah. I'm talking about stuff that has affected my people, and especially my family here. And this is, this is as much as I can do for this episode. See you next time, when we shall, once again, hope to finish the story about gulags. Maybe we won't, maybe we will. I don't know. It's getting harder and harder for me to produce these. And yeah, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, support us on Patreon. And until next time. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The eastern border salutes you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So, for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.